Welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Menifee. Each week, we gather to better understand the teachings of the Bible and how to live them out in our daily lives. We hope and pray that you're encouraged by this week's message. Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 17. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Belium and oxstone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It's the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the power and the glory, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen. Father, we have those exact requests for ourselves this morning, Lord. We we pray that your kingdom would come and your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. We know that request will one day be answered, and we long for that time when you restore all things. We pray, Lord, that your name would be lifted high, would be hallowed, even here as we gather, especially here, Lord, that we would worship you, that this gathering would be about you, would be about enjoying and worshiping and delighting and praising you, magnifying you, showing the world what you're like. And Lord, we pray that you would give us our daily bread, Lord, both physically and spiritually. I pray for those here who are struggling in their work and their finances. Um, having all sorts of difficulties in the area of daily bread. I pray, Lord, that you would bless them in that, that you would give them good, meaningful work. Even as we speak about work this morning, Lord, we pray that you would bless these people's work, their labors for their family, for their community, 
and as acts of worship to you. And we pray, Lord, for our daily bread in this word that we open. We pray that we'd be fed by it, that we'd be strengthened by it, that we'd leave knowing that we had truly met with you, the living God. We pray, Lord, that you'd forgive our debts, and we even notice that you put in here that as we forgive our debtors, and so we just pray, Lord, right now against any bitterness that we're harboring against others, especially others in this room, in our families. Lord, we pray that you would free us from that. We pray, Lord, that we would do whatever needs to be done to, to make amends there, to, to, to reconcile. Lord, we pray that you would deliver us from temptation or lead us not in temptation. Lord, that you would help us to avoid those temptations that ensnare us over and over and over again, Lord. We pray that you would make us wise and that you would keep our feet far from it and that you would change our hearts so that more and more we desire the things you desire and we enjoy the things you enjoy and we delight in doing your commandments. Lord, we pray that your yoke would be easy and your burden light on us, that your commandments would not be burdensome because they'd be done in love for you. And Father, we pray that you would deliver us from evil. Lord, this is a evil time. And Lord, we need your rescue. We need your deliverance. We pray that you would deliver the whole world from it. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're in the second week of a series uh, called Generous Design. And in it, we're looking at God's generous design of making us male or female and giving us work and giving us friendship and marriage and sex and parenting and all these different issues. We're in the second week. This week, we're going to look at God's generous design and giving us work to do. So we're going to look at our work. And I have some free books. The church does. I'm not buying them for you. But um, we're giving out free books every week that relate to whatever's going on. This week, it's a book called Every Good Endeavor by Tim Keller, Connecting Your Work to God's Work. Super helpful book. This was very, very helpful in me understanding my own work. And I've got five copies here. If it's something that you would read like really soon, we would love for you to take a copy and read it. And, you know, the reason why I'm so big on, on books and putting books out for you guys is because I've been largely discipled by books. I mean, I can just think of so many things that I treasure in the scripture that I first discovered or were first brought to my attention in good books. I don't know where I would be without it. And so I don't know if reading is a part of your discipleship, but it should be. It's just an amazing thing that God has given us good books uh, to read. So that's why we're doing this, because I believe if you took that book, you're struggling in your work, you're having some things, and it would bring to light some of the biblical truths about work, it would do so much transformation in you throughout the week, so much help that would last. So please take that if it's something you would read. But work's complicated, right? Work is complicated, work is difficult, work is confusing, and it's because sin, because sins entered the world and made it confusing. And one like framework that Reformed theology uses to kind of understand lots of things in our life is the framework of there are four acts to history. And the four acts are creation, God creates the world good and, and right, and everything's wonderful. The passage we just read is part of that. Then there's the fall. You know, human beings turn on God, sin enters the world, things become difficult. Then there's redemption. Christ comes, lives a perfect life, dies in our place, is resurrected, ascended. That's, uh, redemption gives the spirit. That's re- the act of redemption. And then there's restoration. When he comes back and he makes all things right in the world, makes the world new. And so uh, creation, fall, redemption, restoration. It's super important for you to know where you are in the story. And you're right between redemption and restoration. Christ has come, he's paid the debt for your sin, he's given you his spirit, he'll live through you, and you're awaiting the promise of his restoration of all things. 
And the reason why it's so important to see that grid is the Bible talks about things like marriage as being a gift and work and all these different things we're going to go through as being this good gift, but we have to recognize that it's not the way it was, right? The fall has come in and complicated all these good gifts that God's given, but we're not living there either. We're living after redemption. Christ has done things to redeem our work and our relationships, and so we live out of that. And so I want to look at work in those lenses this morning. I want to look at creation, your work is a gift, the fall, your work is curse, redemption, your work is redeemed, and then restoration, your work will one day be perfected. So that's the way we're going to kind of follow through here. Creation, your work is a gift. You see in the very beginning, Genesis 1, take a look at it, you just see God at work joyfully creating the world, and he's creating the world with his voice, which is amazing. You guys use like text-to-speech, and it's kind of amazing. You talk in, and it types. This is text-to-matter. This is, I speak, and things come into existence. That's what God does. That's what he did. Let there be, and there was. Let there be, and there was. This is the kind of being who can create matter and space and time and energy and stuff like that from his voice. Incredible. But then we see in Genesis 2 that he gets a little more intimate with the people. He he forms Adam out of the dust of the ground. He gets very intimately involved. And then he gets intimately involved in making them a home. You take a look at Genesis 2.8. It says, The Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had made. So he actually planted the garden. God planted the garden. You know, He finds a patch of land that he's going to put his people in, and he plants them a garden. So from the very beginning here, we have God as a gardener planting a garden which is really unusual in the view of work during that time. It wasn't a thing that the gods that people invented were workers that would garden, that would plant. And so God's getting very intimate with his creation and making things here. And at every point of creation, you see the Lord saying, it's good, it's good, it's good. And then after he creates the human beings, he says, it was very good. This is his favorite part of creation. And so God made us, guys, to enjoy his work. And then God also made us to imitate him and enjoy our own work. God has made each one of us to have the same feelings of creation that he had in our own everyday labors, to have enjoyment in it. Take a look at Genesis 2.15. It says, The Lord took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Part of God's generous design is to give us all meaningful work to engage in. And keep in mind, this is before the fall. Some people have this idea that like human beings were kicking it and doing no useful labor whatsoever, and then the fall came, and then work is a result of the fall. That's not the case. Work is cursed because of the fall, but work is a part of God's original design for human beings. We were created for this. And you can see that God gives Adam two types of work. He gives him physical work, that's in verse 15, tending the garden, and then he gives him intellectual work too. In verse 19, he has him naming the animals. That's not a physical work, that's an intellectual work. And we see from this, from this passage that God has designed human beings for this kind of labor. If you go to Genesis 1.28, though, you'll see the big picture. Because a lot of times we think that, okay, he's got the Garden of Eden. He's just put, you know, it's a few acres. He's supposed to tend that thing and protect that thing. And that's all there is to it. But actually, if you read Genesis 1.28, it says, God says to the humans, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So apparently, Adam and our roles following him were to not just maintain a little patch garden, but to spread the garden out over the whole world. 
that we would cultivate the world, that we would spread the garden out to create God-honoring culture where human beings flourish. For the blessings of humans and the glory of God, we were to create this flourishing garden that would extend over the world. Theologians call this the cultural mandate. This was the original design for humans to expand the kingdom of God everywhere. So work is a gift from God to bless others and glorify God. Isn't that a cool purpose? It's a beautiful purpose, right? But clearly something went wrong. So that's creation. Then you have the fall, act two. In Genesis 3, we see the first human beings, they sin against God. They rebel against God's generous design. And one of the consequences is a curse on work. Take a look at Genesis 3.17. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it will bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plant of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust and to dust you will return. It's important once again to make clear here that work is not the curse, but there is a curse on work. Work has been made difficult. This is really important to know. How many of you guys have heard a message in church on work before, ordinary work, your everyday work? Is that all the hands, or are we just being shy or introverted? Okay, not very many. Isn't that interesting? It's not a common topic, but it's actually, for a lot of us, this is most of our waking hours. It's interesting. And the Bible speaks so helpfully on this. You know, it speaks to work is good, but work is cursed. This explains our experience. This explains why we find great satisfaction in our work, and yet we find our work totally frustrating at times. And the reason is created, good gift, but also bears a curse. And notice, guys, that Adam specifically is given the curse of work. If you go back to Genesis 3.17, he says this to Adam. And that's because the primary burden of work was put on Adam. Even in creation, before Eve was created, Adam was given two things. He was given God's law, and he was given the work of the garden. You could say, like, Adam was given two things before Eve. He was given a Bible and a shovel, right? Those are two roles that were given specifically to Adam to lead his family and to provide. And then we also see that in the curse here, that this curse on work is given specifically to Adam, so the work of the curse of work landed mainly on him. Eve had her own curse. It had to do with childbirth, pain in childbirth. And I just want to encourage you, husbands, the burden of working to provide for your family doesn't only fall on you, but primarily falls on you. It's primarily your burden to bear. And if your wife feels the need to shift more of her focus to take care of the home or the kids and, and leave the workplace or diminish her work in the workplace, I believe you have a responsibility to do whatever you can to make that happen. And, and I see that right here in Genesis 1, that part of creation is that the husband, the father, is the one that bears the main responsibility for work. It doesn't mean wives don't work outside the home. It doesn't mean mothers can't work outside the home. But it does mean when the, when the burden comes down, when somebody has to bear the curse, it's for the husband. It's for us to bear that. And, and so if we believe Genesis 3, we should expect that our work is going to be hard. Okay, and I think most of us have encountered that unless you're a kid and haven't had a job yet or something. But we know our work is hard. And there's a lot of silliness out there right now about work as far as, you know, if you were to just like find your passion, you know, live your dream. Um, You ever heard people say, find a job you love and you'll never work a day in your life? Okay, that is like, you know, maybe in Genesis 2. 
But for where we live, that's straight up heresy, right? And it, it's straight up heresy. Uh, Genesis 3 tells us to expect to work hard. It says this, by the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread. I just don't know of anything more descriptive than that. It says that the world is going to bear for us thorns and thistles. It's saying that you're going to work hard on projects, you're going to do your best, and sometimes it's just going to fall apart. It's just going to turn around and bite you. Like, this is, this is the world we live in. And not only, guys, is it a heresy to say, find something you love to do and you'll never work a day in your life, but it's, it's a formula for a very unstable, immature life. And you see that a lot, you know, and that's not a, a new generation thing. That's, this has always been the case, that people will bounce from job to job looking for work that isn't work, Right? So you get a job, and it's like, hey, how's your new job? Oh, it's so great. I love it. Never had anything I enjoyed so much. A few weeks in, it's like, how's your job? Oh, I'm leaving that place. <laughs> and then they get in the new job. Oh, this job's so much better. It's so great. It's like, yeah, they're in orientation. They haven't worked you yet, you know? Like, of course it's great, you know? And they were just so happy to have you because they couldn't find anyone. So there's going to be a honeymoon period. And so you go from work to work, and you're like, oh, shoot, this is work too. And you go to the next job. Oh, this is work. Yeah, it's all work. You know, Genesis 3 should make us realistic that work is hard because the fall has cursed it. And we can see that in dramatic ways. If we look at human history and the way that work has been cursed, we see things like slavery, exploited workers. In your own life, you may have experienced job loss due to disability. You may have experienced tyrannical bosses or demanding customers or failed projects or, you know, rush hour traffic or burnout or like super painful PowerPoint meetings or email. I mean, it goes on and on, but like you can just see that work itself has been made difficult. And guys, lest you think that I have somehow escaped the curse because of my dream job as, in, as a horse veterinarian. I know what you're all thinking like. Actually, there is one person here that want to be a horse veterinarian. None of the rest of you do. And, uh, but Adam has jacked me up too, right? Through horses. Like I've had my you know, disc blown out in my back and my shoulder torn up and been kicked and bit and struck and had my fingernail ripped off by horse, uh, been covered in blood and pus. I did shower for today. Uh, baked in the sun so that I look like twice as old as I actually am. Can you guys believe I'm 24? I know, it's crazy. And, and I also want to remind you guys, lest you forget, that my job requires a glove that goes all the way up my arm, okay? And if you're not sure what that is, ask your neighbor who's laughing. They probably know. But I'll just tell you, like, you, you train for something, you work for something, and you think, this is going to be great, this is going to be my passion, this is going to be wonderful, you know, and you find something you enjoy. But you know what you find out? It's work. All of it's work. Has anybody found work that's not work? Okay, nobody's found. You found work that's not work. Talk to Dell. He has somehow managed to find something. I don't know if he's willing to give it up, though, or share it, but uh, work is work, so there's a curse on work. And um, one of the things you guys probably found out, I found out, is that because work is hard, it's an amazing place that reveals your sin. You guys found that out? That, that work has a way of showing you your anger, your envy, your dishonesty, your greed, your impatience, your fear. You know, you thought you're pretty much a saint, but then work got hard and it all kind of bubbled up. Our work is a special way of showing us what we really worship, you know? Turns out we tend to worship ourselves, you know, not God. It has a way of revealing our sin. Our work is like a forge. It's like a fire, 
you know, that the Lord uses to sanctify us. And I just want to say to you, and especially to young men, I want to say to you, don't avoid the fire, right? Don't avoid that fire. It's a fire that the Lord has for you to, to sanctify you in. And don't ignore what it shows you about your heart. Don't say, well, you know, that's not really me. I had a rough day. That's not really me. My customers were especially difficult today. Oh, you know, my boss. And no, acknowledge the things that work shows you. The Lord is using that to show you your sin. And it's an invitation, right? It's an invitation to repent and be rescued. And so your work is a gift, creation. Your work is curse, the fall. And yet your work is redeemed. Jesus redeems work. And this is a really cool thing because I don't know of anything else like this, but Jesus came, God himself came as a, as a lowly carpenter. Have you ever thought about that? That God, when he comes as a human being, he comes in one of the most lowly jobs. The, the Greek word there is tecton, and it means simple labor. You know, you shouldn't get the idea that he's, you know, making wood sculptures or something, you know, or some, you know, amazing high-end furniture for fancy clients, like he's, you know, making desks for Herod or something like that. No, like his simple labor. And, and what I love about how God appears in Scripture is in the Old Testament, he comes as a gardener, right? He's working with his hands. He's planting a garden for people. And then the New Testament, he comes as a carpenter. Jesus, God in the flesh, spent decades of his life working with his hands. You know? Work he was entirely overqualified for. Right? You might be in a job right now where you're like, you know, I deserve better. I'm qualified for better. And I think you should find better if you can. But Jesus was entirely overqualified to be a carpenter. He worked in work that was cursed and frustrating. He worked in work that did not acknowledge his greatness. You might not think your greatness is being acknowledged at work. This is God in the flesh as a carpenter. His greatness is not being acknowledged at work. And I think it's just so amazing that Jesus, he only spent like 10% of his life in public ministry. Most of his life he led in obscurity doing normal, menial work. And I was just thinking, like, how much does that dignify labor? You know, how much does that dignify work with your hands? And so Jesus lived as a, as a common labor, doing common work, and then he did his most important work, right? Jesus' most important work, his greatest labor, was to carry the weight of our sin on the cross. You know, our sin that's revealed in our work, our sin that comes bubbling up when, when things are difficult in our jobs. This carpenter God was was nailed to wood. I think it's amazing. Like, this is the God who made trees, who made wood. This is the God who came and, and worked with wood all of his life. And then the materials of his vocation become the instruments of his greatest work, his dying for our sins. You have to think about, like, Jesus' life. Like, the whole time he knew what he came to do, right? You think of him in his workshop working with wood and sanding things and using nails and knowing what he's come to do for us. That that same wood he would work for other people, he was going to do his greatest work on as he would nail to that cross. And then they buried him, right? They buried him in a garden tomb. He rose on the third day. And do you guys remember what Mary, who Mary mistook Jesus for? The gardener. Isn't that interesting? She was not wrong, <laughs> right? This is the gardener God of Genesis 2 who's come to bring us the garden back, who's come to do what Adam should have done and spread the work of the garden over the whole creation, to, to lift the curse and bring us back to God, to undo all of Adam's failures. And so Jesus redeems our ordinary work. As we look at what Jesus has done for us, he's paid the debt for our sin, he's filled us with his spirit, 
He's, he's at work even in us now. Now we can look to work for what it is. We no longer look to work now, or we try not to look to work anymore, for what only God can give. We don't look to it for our ultimate satisfaction, our ultimate security, our ultimate approval, or our ultimate significance. Like, we don't look to it for any of those things because we have Christ, right? Our work is now uh, an act of worship, not of ourselves, but of Christ. I love what Colossians 3.24 says. He's talking about ordinary work, and he says, in your ordinary work, you are serving the Lord Christ. Isn't that amazing? So our work now can become and should be about the worship of Christ. Our work is no longer about us, it's about him. And it's about loving and serving our neighbors, because Luther said this great line, I, I always loved it. He said, God doesn't need our good works. God doesn't need our good works, right? I don't know what you do with them. God doesn't need our good works, but our neighbor does. I love that quote. God doesn't need our good works, but our neighbor does. And your everyday work, what you're about, you guys don't have to work tomorrow probably. I'm, work, I'm working tomorrow. I'm working this afternoon. <laughs> but um, anyway, your everyday work is your most consistent opportunity to love your neighbor as yourself. Do you guys realize that? Like, you have the, what you can do at home, but most of you that are out somewhere in a workplace, that is your most consistent opportunity to love your neighbor as yourself, which Jesus said is the second greatest commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. We do that through our ordinary work. That's what our work is for. And I want to run through like some specifics because, you know, like I was asking you, how many sermon, have you heard a sermon on work before? Almost never does this happen. I think it would be a good idea to just talk through some of the details of like, how do we love our neighbors in our work? And I have three C's because it's a preacher thing. So there's three C's and the three C's are we love our neighbors in our work through our competence, our culture shaping, and our conversations. So I'm just going to run through those real quick. I think they're really helpful. They've been really helpful to me in my work. But competence, okay. You might think like if I said, what's your work for? Because I'm a pastor, you might think I'd say, well, it's for evangelism. But that's not the ultimate reason you're at work, actually. You're not ultimately there for evangelism. And that might seem shocking to you. But let me ask you this. So Alex, somebody in our church, Daigle, he is training to be an airline pilot. He was already a pilot, but he's training to be an airline pilot. Christian airline pilot. What is a Christian airline pilot's most important obligation to you? It's not to share the gospel. It's to land the plane, okay? <laughs> like, you're like, yes, gospel, great. Landing the plane, more essential right now, okay? Not that evangelism is less essential, but in that moment, that's his duty, right? The most important way you love and serve your neighbor in your work is your competence. You know, when I just prayed earlier, Give us this day our daily bread. How does God give us bread? You think about like, he doesn't just pop it out, you know, in your, in your pantry. He does it through farmers. He does it through bakers and truck drivers and shop owners and people that stock the shelves and cashiers, right? Countless people doing their ordinary work. That's how God gives us our daily bread. Your work is providing goods and services for other people that can't do it for themselves. Most of the things you do, people can't do for themselves. You know, I couldn't make most of the things I use every day, no matter how much time I had, right? I couldn't make the things I use every day, and neither could you. You know, people talk, I have clients, you know, the horse people, and they're like, oh, we're going to live off the grid and, you know, all this stuff, right? Like, we're going to, especially the last two years, like, it's time to live off the grid, you know, like, you know, bunker out. You can't really live off the grid, not in any way that wouldn't be absolute devastating squalor. 
okay? Because these people are like, we're going to get solar panels, we're going to have a well, we're going to have this stuff. And like, they didn't make solar panels. They didn't dig a well. None of this stuff, right? There's no way to live in a way that's not dependent on other humans. God's designed it that way. And what's really cool is because God's designed us to be dependent on other humans, it's an opportunity for us to love other people. We're giving them something they can't do themselves or don't have time to do themselves, which is a beautiful thing. It's an opportunity to love and serve your neighbors. So the main way we love our neighbors every day is, is through our work and through the ways that we serve other people. And one issue I had with that, because my services are really expensive, as I, I kind of wrestle with, and this book helped me a lot, was, well, how can my service to other people be an act of love if they're paying a lot of money for it? You know, that's kind of a weird it's always felt like, you know, this is expensive. I don't know that it's love and service because they're paying me. And this book was really helpful, Every Good Endeavor, because it brought up the question of like, have you ever found a really great mechanic? Or have you ever found a really great dentist? Or have you ever found a really great plumber that you could totally trust? And then people ask, like, hey, anybody know a guy? You're super excited to share it, right? Because this person does their work well, you can trust them, they're honest, they care for you, their work is an act of love, and you're happy to pay them for it. So the paying part is not something that takes out the love thing, because when we have a person that's, that's your guy or your woman that really knows how to do whatever the thing is, that's an act of love. And so what we're to do as Christians is be that person, you know, and that'll be an act of love and service to others. I want to also address um, homemakers. For those of you whose work is raising and educating and discipling your kids, that's an incredibly valuable work, and an incredibly valuable work. And I would just say to you, I want to encourage you that you should do it with all the dignity and diligence of a heart surgeon or an architect, because your work will last longer than theirs, right? Because I think some of the times, especially stay-at-home moms and you know homemakers, is they sometimes get discouraged that maybe they're not doing something really important, and that kind of plays into the amount of diligence. If you look at the Proverbs 31 uh, homemaker there, she has an extreme dignity in what she does. She knows what she's doing lasts for eternity, and she does it with great diligence. And so I just want to encourage you in that, as your work is even more valuable, and do it with all the dignity and diligence that you see there. So we love and serve others with our competence. We also love and serve others with our culture-making. So as we love and serve others, you know, doing our work as best we can, we also have opportunities for culture shaping. And you go like, okay, that sounds like kind of a big deal. What I'm talking about there is like, you might be on a team, you work with a team. You might be in management, you might be a creative person, you might be a teacher. You have an opportunity to shape the culture of your workplace. And Jesus talked about this. He said that we're salt and light, right? You guys know the salt is for preserving meat, right? The difference between like roadkill and jerky is actually salt and maybe the species of the animal, but, but we're to be salt, right? We're to be preservatives in the culture. You're to be that in your workplace. And so when you think of culture shaping your workplace, think of it this way. Does my presence in this workplace make my workplace a more positive culture? So making it more positive. I get that from Philippians. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish amidst a crooked and twisted generation among whom you'll shine as lights. Isn't that true? That just by not grumbling and disputing, you can shine as lights. So is it a more positive culture? Is it a more just culture? You know, is your workplace more just because of your influence there? 
One story I really love is uh, Arthur Guinness. He was the founder of the Guinness Brewing Company back in the 18th century. And there's a book on him. It's called uh, The Search for God in Guinness, which is a goofy title. But the book is really cool because it gives you some insight in like, what does a Christian businessman look like? like? And the cool thing about Arthur Guinness is he was really famous in the 1700s for how he treated his employees. He provided like regular low-level employees medical care, dental care, retirement, high wages. I mean, he was known for this because he was a Christian. And, and he made a very just type culture in his work, and that spread. Or uh, John uh, Wanamaker, he was a Christian businessman. He invented the price tag. You're like, I didn't even know the price tag needed to be invented. Well, before him, people just haggled. You go into a store, and you're like, oh, you need a bag of rice or whatever, and it's like, how much you want for it? This much? You haggle back and forth. Well, he saw that there were certain people that paid more and certain people that paid less. And a lot of times it's the poor and those who had less power actually paid higher prices. And Proverbs 22, 22 says, do not rob the poor because he is poor or crush the afflicted at the gate. And so he's like, if everybody's made in God's image, everybody should pay the same price. So he started putting price tags on things. People are like, how much you want for that? That much. Well, will you take this? No, there's a price tag here. That's what we're doing. And that's from him. That's from a Christian living, wanting a more just culture in his work. Is your work a more gracious place? Is your work a more humble place? Let me ask you this. Have you set the tone by admitting when you fail at work, when you sin at work? You know, it's a powerful thing to say to non-Christians, I need to seek your forgiveness. I sinned against you there. And they're like, whoa, 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 like, kind of making a big deal of this. No, no, I'm serious. I want you to forgive me. You know, that's a huge testimony. Sometimes we think that our testimony is by looking flawless and then kind of ignoring all flaws because that's going to hurt our witness. The thing that's best for our witness is like what Paul said. He said, this is a trustworthy statement and full of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world for sinners of whom I'm the foremost, right? That we would lead in the tone of humility and asking for forgiveness. Culture shaping, guys, is another reason why I think that those of you who can move up in your place of business should because you can actually create a better culture for people under you. I mean, human beings spend tons of their time in a typical workplace, usually. And if there's a Christian that's higher up in it and is creating that kind of environment, it makes their whole life better. It's a way in which we can bless, love, and serve our neighbors. And then we have conversations. If we're doing those things, sometimes we'll have conversations. We've been scattered as priests throughout all of these vocations God's called us to. Another thing I really love about the Reformation is it was a time when people started to understand that it wasn't just the priests that had a calling, but it was the bakers that had a calling, and it was the soldiers that had a calling, and that all these jobs were important. And it also brought to light the truth again from First Peter that every believer is a priest. And so now you have people called into all these different fields, all as God's priests in that location. And sometimes we don't get that message. I mean, I think often you guys, me too, will, will think the real ministry is done by missionaries and professional pastors and professional Christian workers. But guys, God's track record is actually to work through ordinary people in their ordinary jobs. Think about this. So Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were shepherds. Joseph was a civil servant in Egypt. Deborah was a civil servant in Israel. Daniel was a civil servant in Babylon. Nehemiah was a civil servant in Persia. Maybe you guys should all get government jobs. Uh, Aquila and Priscilla were co-owners of a tent-making business. Lydia sold purple. 
I mean, you see God's mission powerfully going out through ordinary people in their ordinary jobs. Isn't that cool? And so we'll have opportunities for conversations, the third C. Things like giving counsel. I know for a lot of you guys, we'll talk and you find out people in your workplace see you as a wise person. They ask your counsel and you're able to give them biblical counsel when they ask for it. You're able to share like, things from scripture that make real life difference in this world. You're able to pray with people. You know, because I'm a veterinarian, people like to tell me their medical problems, which I've specifically tried to avoid dealing with by becoming a veterinarian, you know? And so they'll tell me their medical problems, some of them are quite intimate, and I'm like, okay, that's enough. But it gives me an opportunity, guys, to pray for them, right? And be like, I'm going to pray for you. And uh, we have this thing, and Marcel alluded to a few weeks ago, that we talk about, which is a ninja prayer. So a ninja prayer is somebody gives you a concern, and you just immediately pray for them, ninja style. Modified ninjas, can I pray for you right now? And you tell them, and then don't even let them answer, but start praying. That's a modified ninja. But a lot of times what we'll do is, you know, people bring hardships up in our workplace. And if we're bold enough, we might say, oh, I'll be praying for you. But how much better, guys, to pray for them right there. And it's amazing how people that aren't even believers, they'll, they'll weep when you pray for them. They are so thankful. And it gives you an opportunity to maybe also, third one, clarify the good news of Jesus. We have opportunities in this place. Um, homemakers, once again, I just want to encourage you guys. You guys have a great opportunity to minister to neighbors. It's crazy how lonely our neighbors are. If we would reach out to them, we could have amazing ministry with them or with other parents. What I'd like to see in our church is that those who are in the same field, like we got a bunch of firemen or we got a bunch of policemen, a bunch of teachers, that you guys would talk to each other about what's worked. You know, how have you actually strategically shared the gospel with people? In our workplaces, that's not the main reason we're there. We have to be strategic in how we do it. But we could get some tips from each other, right? Like, you know, a friend of ours, Bo, police officer, he would very regularly share the gospel with people in the back of his car, you know, and captive audience. And so he would put them in the back, and he would start talking to them. He had a standard way of talking to them. And one of the things, was he would ask them about their mom. And that would usually make him cry and make him very humble. And then he would share the gospel with them. He would feed them. As he was booking them, they'd be cuffed. And he'd be hand-feeding them and stuff. And he had an opportunity to share the gospel with them. And, and a lot of them, you know, who knows what happened with that. But what a cool opportunity, right? So I think we should talk amongst each other and figure out, like, in your workplace, what's the best way to do this? But, guys, in our church, we have an amazing variety here. We have an aesthetic laser nurse in our body. We have a barber, we have a braille transcriber, we have a cook, corporate executive, construction workers, a dietitian. Okay, part of the deal is you're going to be like, who's that? That's your job. Okay, so part of why I do this is not just to do this, but I have a second benefit because I'm, I'm sneaky, is I'm wanting you to go like, oh, I don't know who those people are. Oh, isn't that interesting? Like, you should look, right? Okay, so the other thing to notice is this is in alphabetical order. I just want you to notice that. Okay, let me start over. An aesthetic laser nurse, a barber, a braille transcriber, a cook, corporate executive, construction worker, a dietitian, electrician, engineers, FedEx driver, flood restoration technician, a bunch of firemen, in case anything goes crazy here, grandparents doing all kinds of childcare, graphic artist, hospice chaplain, internet service tech, internal auditor, insurance agent, librarian, loan officer, managers, management analyst. I don't know what some of these things are. 
missionaries, nurses, nurse practitioner, pool equipment manufacturer. How about this? We have an organ transplant coordinator, if you need one. Okay, you might be like, do you know any Christian organ transplant people? Just asking. Okay, hopefully you don't. We have a pilot, I already mentioned that one, a PA, police officers, lots of professors, we're a professorly place, programmers, real estate agents, salesmen, senior quality assurance auditor. Did I get that right, Dave? He's got the longest one. You can ask him about that. A speaker writer. We have a spin instructor. Do you guys know we have a spin instructor? We do. Okay, a spin instructor. I get excited about that one. Lots of stay-at-home moms, housemakers, homemakers. Students, survey department manager, lots of teachers, tech support guy. Um, We've got marriage and family therapists. We have a train conductor. Did you know we have a train conductor? How many of you know who the train conductor is? Man, you got work to do. Okay, you got to find out. He's here right now. I'm not going to look at him. We have somebody that delivers Uber Eats. We have an ultrasound tech. We have water district employees like crazy. And a lot of others. And I know I've probably missed yours. Sorry if I did. But it makes you think, like, do we have a ministry to first responders in our church? You might ask that. Hey, do we have a ministry? Yes, we do. It's our first responders. And they're amazing, right? Do we have a ministry to stay-at-home moms? We do. Do we have something for teachers or engineers or hospital staff? It's you guys. It's crazy how many places we have agents. You know? We have priests You know, a whole brotherhood and sisterhood of priests in every field. It's amazing. No church could afford to put missionaries in all those places. But you're already there, and they pay you to be there, which is amazing. Okay, so your ministry is scattered as priests in in your workplace. Okay, so your work is a gift, creation. Your gift is curse, the fall. Your work is redeemed, redemption. And then your work will be perfected. Your work will be perfected. The story of work starts in the garden, it gets redeemed in a garden tomb, and then it ends in a garden planet. If you look at Revelation 21, what we're headed to is the world made new, a garden planet. And in the end, we're going to see all of our labors, all of our ordinary work, perfected. And I get that from Revelation 21, 24. It says this, By its light will the nations walk. This is talking about on the new earth. And the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and the gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night. And then it says, they will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations. Now, I take that, the glory and the honor of the nations being brought into the new world as the redeemed fruit of all of our labors. That all the things you ever worked really hard for in this world being redeemed and restored and made new in the world to come. Because in this life, our work is frustrating. It's often met with futility. But in the end, your deepest aspirations of your, of your work are going to be fully realized in the world to come. So Jesus will make everything you've ever worked for a perfect reality. For example, in your work, have you worked for justice? It's going to be a place of perfect justice. Have you worked for healing? It's going to be a place of perfect healing. Have you worked to build, to nurture, to clean? It's going to be a clean place. Did you work to serve? Did you work to feed? Did you work to beautify? Did you work to teach? Did you work to protect? Christ will perfect all of your labors in the world to come. Your works live on in Christ. They don't just get burned up at the end. If you believe that, I could see why you wouldn't think much of your work. You know, you try really hard to do things. Things don't work out a lot of the time. There's futility, and then it all just burns in the end. Well, yeah, I wouldn't put much effort into that either. 
But what we see here is that Christ perfects our works in the world to come. Jesus, the better Adam, has come to fulfill his work of spreading the garden over the whole world. He does it, right? He will give us new, satisfying work to do. There'll be work even in the new world. Um, Isaiah 65 says this, They shall inhabit houses. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit, and they shall not plant and another eat. That always happened to Israel. (laughs) For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be, and my chosen ones shall long enjoy the work of their hands. Isn't that cool? Meaningful labor. And I would just say to you guys here who aren't believers yet, join us there. You can come. Jesus has paid your way. If you trust in him, if you trust in this, you know, blue-collar, rough-handed God who came and had his hands pierced for you to take away your sin, you can join him in the world to come. He's now risen in glory. He's coming back to make all things new. And I would just say, guys, receive Christ. If you receive him, he changes everything, including your everyday work. You know, you can return to your, your everyday work with a whole new heart and a whole new power, right? You're going with Christ. You can work knowing that through Christ, none of your labors are in vain. So what it says at the end of 1 Corinthians 15, it says at the end that your labors are not in vain because of the resurrection. He will make all of your love and service bear fruit in the world to come. It's restoration. Jesus takes away all the pointlessness of work. He's going to make it all new. And, and you can work knowing that Christ is working in you. you know? Who better to work in you and empower you to do your work than Jesus who labored in obscurity all those years, you know, serving sinlessly, even in frustrating work. He can live through you and make all your work an act of love and worship. You can be like Paul who says, I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Let's pray. Father, I just pray for all of us, whether our work is in the home with family or our work is in a workplace or something in between. I pray that when we're in that place, which we tend to try to do all by ourselves and we don't really think of it as a very spiritual act, I pray, Lord, that we would meet you there, that you would meet us there, that we would more and more sense that you're with us there. So many hours toiling in our regular labors, and we pray, Lord, that there would be a time of communion with you, that you, our Father, would be with us, that we'd feel your pleasure as we work, that we'd feel your Son's life in us as we serve. Lord, we pray you'd fill us with the Spirit to do this. We pray, Lord, as we do this and we bless our neighbors through our work, we pray, Lord, you give us many opportunities to speak about the gospel, to pray for people, to share the message of your son with them. Lord, we pray it'd be a greatly fruitful place. I pray for all those here who have great hardships in their work, perhaps not earning enough. We pray that you would help them, you bless them in that, in their work, that you would um, be the one who provides the bread for them there. We pray for those who are here who are disabled and not able to work, Lord. We pray um, that you would strengthen them. Then we know, Lord, because work is a gift, that it's a great hardship when you can't do it. So we pray, Lord, for their healing. We pray, Lord, for you to strengthen their spirits in it. We pray, Lord, for all the hurts around this. And we just pray, Lord, that you would meet us in a new way. 
Give us strength. Help us to be a blessing. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can email us at info at covgraceminifee.org. May the Lord bless your week and guide your steps.